turn in your Bibles to John uh, chapter 14. The opening three verses are our focus this morning. I don't know if you're an anxious person, uh, someone who struggles with worry, who finds himself struggling to sleep because of things turning over and over in your mind, or whether there's times when you almost choke up and freeze uh, with panic. For all sorts of reasons, we can find ourselves anxious and worried whether that goes on and on, or whether that's brief, whether it's for a few months, or whether it's something we find we live with continuously. For some, it's more crippling than others, but we all experience anxiety and worry, and what are we to do about it? Well, what if we had Jesus' own remedy, a remedy that the great physician of souls gave to his disciples when they are on the verge of the most terrible moment of their lives? They're about to go through the ringer mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Already they have had a glimpse of what lies ahead. Their hearts are troubled, and Jesus is going to speak to them now. He who knows them intimately, He who knows our souls and our minds and our hearts better than any other person who's ever lived, is going to speak. But what if this remedy is more than Jesus' words to His fearful disciples? What if it is a remedy that Jesus Himself has been using? This is the fourth time that we have met this word troubled. We met it in John chapter 11, when Jesus was deeply troubled as He went to the tomb of Lazarus. In John chapter 12, we met it when the Greeks came looking to see Jesus, and Jesus said, "'Now my hour has come, and my heart is troubled.'" And then in John chapter 13, uh, whenever Judas uh, is going to betray Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, says, uh, verse 21, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Troubled, troubled, troubled. It's Jesus who's been troubled thus far. It's Jesus, and we saw that that word means that his soul is, is caught up in a great convulsion. It's as if it's being torn apart. This isn't somebody who's mildly worried. Jesus himself is in deep, deep anguish of heart. And Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. I think this is what he's been saying to himself over and over again since, well, at least the Tuesday of the week, whenever the Greeks came to see him and came looking for him, and he was troubled, perhaps even longer as he goes back to Lazarus' death, and he was troubled then. Remember, Jesus is fully man as well as fully God, and we can't allow the fact that He's God to overrule the fact that this is an awful moment. His heart is troubled like no heart had ever been troubled 
in the history of humanity. Perhaps why, that's why these words have had such force over the last 20 centuries. Three things I want us to see. First of all, resist. Resist and refocus. Resist and refocus. That's what Jesus says. Do not let your heart be troubled. Or uh, what the, the, the command really means is don't keep letting your heart be troubled. It is troubled. You're experiencing this deep anguish of soul. Don't keep letting that happen to you, he says. Don't keep on being troubled. And then he says, trust, keep on trusting God. So he calls his disciples to resist and to refocus. Judas has left the room. Perhaps as the disciples talk amongst each other, John has been relaying to the other disciples what Jesus said, and that Judas is the one who's on his way at this very moment to betray the disciples and Jesus. But it's got worse than that. The darkness has only deepened. Jesus, when we read from Matthew 26, the other gospel accounts, Jesus has told the disciples that they will all run. Jesus has told the disciples that Satan has asked to sift Peter. He has told Peter, and we read it, that Peter himself will deny even knowing Jesus three times before sunrise the next morning. And Jesus has just told them twice, my children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am, where I am going, you cannot come. You can imagine the disciples. They've given up everything to follow Jesus, and now he's going. You can sense the sense of abandonment and fear and anxiety. Confusion. What do you mean you're going? We've left everything to follow you. Our businesses our tax collecting, perhaps family and friends who thought that they were mad, their homes. What were they going to do? Were they going to go back with their tails between their legs? What of the hostility against Jesus that they would now have to face? And he's going. And it's not in the far distance. It's, it's now. And Jesus knows what lies ahead of them. He knows what they're going to see, that they'll see the garden arrest, the trial, the beatings, the crucifixion itself. They will see their beloved Lord and Master whom they regard as King, whom they regard as the Son of God. They're going to see Him crucified, the ultimate shame. We in the West don't particularly get shame, but if you lived in the Middle East or the Far East, you would have a very well-attuned sense of shame. That sense of somebody connected to you has done something, and the stain of it spreads over you and your life too. Well, they're going to see Jesus crucified, the one on whom they'd pinned all their hopes shamed. They will be troubled. And Jesus calls them, 
to resist. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, if that was all he said, it would be cruel. If all he said was simply stop worrying, but he says more than that. He calls them to resist something and to keep doing something to refocus their mind's attention. And let's consider both of these. We're to resist worry. They were to resist worry. He's saying, don't keep letting this happen. Um, Stop letting your heart be troubled. He can see that they are troubled, and he calls them to put the brakes on. He wants them to see there's an alternative to anxiety and fear and worry. How kind. There is an alternative, but we need to disengage our mind from that tumbling and freewheeling that, that happens when we worry, when we're focusing on one thing and all our thoughts are, are connecting and joining in to that one thing, and they get bigger and bigger. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, stop. Stop letting your heart do that. Don't let it run downhill, picking up speed and momentum. I think that's what he's had to say to himself. Can you imagine the awful momentum his mind would have gathered as he thought of all of the sins that he was going to have to bear, as he thought of all of the judgment he was going to have to bear, and he will have to think about it. He can't switch off from it on the cross. He is going to have to consider that and think about it. But in this moment, he's not at the cross And in these moments leading up to it, he knows it has the potential to crush him. He was sorrowful in Gethsemane to the point of death. And he's saying to the disciples, can you imagine what Jesus, his mind, taking in not just the sin and the judgment, but also Satan's attacks and Satan being given, as it were, free reign to to attack him. And he knows all of the evil and malevolent hatred that's lined up against him in the demonic realm. I wonder how often he said to himself, stop it, stop thinking about that. Resist, resist. Don't let your mind go there. It will have to go there soon enough when I have to face it. Jesus, I think, is telling us to do what he himself has been doing. This isn't an impossible command. He's saying there is an alternative. There is an alternative. And this gentle physician of souls says to his disciples, there's an alternative for you too. Don't let your heart be troubled. And then he says, trust in me. Trust in God. Refocus on God. Refocus on God. Disengage your mind from all those things that that are causing you to worry and, and engage it over here. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Somebody might think, well, is that saying that Jesus is different from God? Well, to a Jewish person hearing that, to hear somebody say, trust in God, and then in the same breath to say, the same way you trust God, trust also in me, is not saying they're different from God. They're saying, I am God. Exactly the same way you trust God, trust me. Jesus is giving his disciples a focus a focus when their hearts are troubled. He says, look away and trust God. And they say, but God's so distant and far away. And Jesus says, look me in the eye and trust me. 
Focus on me. You've seen my power. Trust me. You've seen my tenderness. Trust me. You've seen my love. Trust also in me. You've seen my sovereignty. Trust in me. You've seen me calm the storm. Remember it. Trust me. You've seen me feed the 20,000 plus women, children, and men with five loaves and two fishes. Trust me. You've seen me cast out legion of demons with a word. Trust me. You've seen me raise Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, Lazarus, with a word. Trust me. Remember those things and trust me, because in trusting me, you're trusting God. And do you need to do that this morning? Do you need to hear Jesus coming alongside you and saying, whoa, whoa, put the brakes on on your mind, and it's free-falling, free-wheeling, worrying. Whoa! Now look, look at me. Look at me. He says, look at me. Take your eyes away from your circumstances and look at me. Trust me. Trust me, he says. Trust me. I want you to hear these words from Jesus as from his own mouth. Imagine him coming and sitting down beside you today, putting his arm around your shoulder and saying, just keep trusting. The command is a perpetual. It's really keep trusting. It's present in its force. Keep trusting me. See him sitting beside you at home or in work. He says, look at me in the eye. Look at me. Look away from that. Keep trusting. Keep trusting. And you say, ah, but what about what? He goes, no, 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 no. Don't go there. Don't let your heart be troubled by all of that. Hear me. Look at me. Trust me. We need to learn the art of hanging up the phone on our own voice when we're listening to our our worries and we're focusing on them. Don't let your heart keep on being troubled, Jesus says. And we need to practice the art of hearing Jesus say, trust me. And we need to hear him say it from the cross. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. And we need to hear him say it now from the throne of heaven. Trust me, he says. Why? Why should we trust him? Well, Jesus goes on to show us two things to to help us focus when the present is hard. First of all, he says, know that your future is bright. Know that your future is bright. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Jesus starts to unpack what lies ahead. It's one of the loveliest passages. You could think on it for a long time. Let me encourage you to do that. I think it is what Jesus himself has been doing. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, we read, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
Jesus says, I am going. And in that little word, going, captures all of the awfulness of, the, of Gethsemane, of the arrest, of the trial, of the beatings, of the six hours on the cross, of the pains of hell, of the pangs of death, of the sorrow of the grave. One little word, I'm going. He's focusing on the joy set before him, his father's house, and going to prepare a place for all his people, all you and me. He's going to do that. The future is bright. He says, focus, whatever the pains of the present, focus on what God is doing and has in store for you so that you do not give up in the present. Here's how he prepares them for what lies ahead. In a few hours, they will see the cross, and only the cross. It will be emblazoned on their minds for two days and two nights, as we would count it. And Jesus knows what they're going to see, and he he seeks to refocus their attention on the future. He's going to his father's house. He's not letting his heart remain troubled. Here is his hope. Here is their hope. Here is our hope. We need to see the reality beyond the turmoil. Do you think much of heaven? We need to think much of heaven. Just let's take a wander through these words. Aren't they lovely? We see it's a family home this bright future of yours and mine, if you've put your trust in Christ. It's a family home in my Father's house. I just love the way Jesus shifts the focus. The cross should be this thing that's front and center in his mind, but no, it's his Father's house. It's as if he's been yearning for home. He longs to go home and to get home. And he doesn't describe heaven as somewhere abstract, somewhere hard to grasp, but my Father's house. He's told the disciples if they've seen Him, they've seen the Father. And the f- heaven will be like Jesus' home. He's been there. He knows what it's like. And you get the sense that He can't wait to get back there. Wait till you see my place is kind of what He's saying. My Father's place. That's where you're going a family home where your father is already there. Your brother is there waiting you. And it's a permanent home, my father's house. I don't know if this is John's, (coughs) excuse me, or Jesus' intention in using the word house. But Paul makes the contrast, doesn't he, between a house and a tent. He says our earthly bodies are like a tent, and they'll be destroyed But we have a a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. There's a permanency about our home, our future. This life is so fleeting and brief and temporary, and our worries are about the things that are fleeting and brief and temporary. We've got a place that's permanent. 
and it's spacious. In my Father's house are many rooms, many rooms, many places to remain, many dwelling places. That's what the word means. The writers of the King James seem to be a little bit excited and translated it, mansions. Yes, heaven will be spectacularly glorious, but perhaps the word is best thought of as many rooms in the Father's mansion. God's house, as far as the Jews were concerned, was the temple. But you couldn't stay there unless you were a serving priest for that month. But then you didn't live in the temple. You lived in adjoining accommodation at the side. But they are going to be in God's home, in God's house. And there will be plenty of space for the plenty of people. We may seem a small number here, but there is a multitude that no man can number. And there is many rooms there. Jesus speaks to the eleven frightened men, and he says, there are many rooms in my Father's house. What a home it will be. Will you be there amongst friends and family, amongst the great heroes of the past, amongst those glorious saints of Scripture? What a place! Many rooms. And it's a prepared home. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I'm going. That sums up their great loss and sorrow. To prepare a place sums up their great privilege. His going is to prepare a place for them. It's hard to know what it means. Sometimes preachers, in trying to portray it, use an illustration of a mum who, who's child or, or son or daughter is coming back from maybe university and, and the mum prepares the room and the, the mum sets out a, a favorite uh, meal uh, on a tray or, or puts the favorite duvet cover on and prepares the room and puts fresh flowers or whatever it might be in the room for their daughter coming back. Favorite flowers, the room is prepared. And sometimes preachers use that as an illustration. But that's... It's nice, but our king will speak a word, and everything will be made new, the same as he did when he spoke the universe into being. He does not need to put in time and energy to prepare a heaven for us. He will speak, and it will happen in a flash. He's not going around with a shopping list, going, I've got to get this for so-and-so and this for another person. He's the King of Kings. Oh, He loves us enough to know our very desires and likes, our preferences. And heaven will be prepared for us, yes. But I think Spurgeon has a brilliant insight when he says, as Joseph went down to Egypt to store the granaries, to prepare for Israel a home in Goshen, and to sit on the throne for their protection, so has our Lord gone away into glory for our good. Joseph went down into Egypt, and his going there enabled a way to be prepared for his brothers to come at a later date. And when his brothers came, they came not knowing. And they were fearful, but when they got there and they found that it was Joseph, and they went back home, and then they're returning to Egypt a second time with their father with them, and they're going 
And they're saying, Father, He's prepared a place for us. And there's food for us, and there's a welcome for us. The King of Egypt Himself will welcome us into Egypt and give us a place in His kingdom. The brothers would have been so excited that their older, well, their youngest brother, but their, their, their brother Joseph had prepared a place for them in Egypt. And they were going to receive a welcome there. And Joseph himself sat on the throne. Oh, how excited they would have been to go to the place prepared for them. And our brother has prepared a place for us. And the king is favorable to us. His going has changed the attitude of heaven to us. And we come into heaven. You imagine the Egyptians looking on the the family of Joseph, they would have looked initially with scorn at these shepherds coming in amongst them, these unclean people coming amongst the Egyptians and their nobility. But then, whenever they found that these were the brothers of Joseph, oh, they treated them with honor and respect and dignity. And so the angels would have looked at us and said, who are these unclean people coming amongst us? Who are these sinful people? But oh no, we are the brothers of Jesus. Oh, oh, what honored people we are now in the sight of the angels. His going has prepared a way for us. Amazing. And it is from the throne that our Jesus will speak with mighty creative voice and call a new creation into being a new Goshen for his brothers and sisters and say, this is the home that is for you. But it's also a personal place for you, for you. And while I don't think we should imagine Jesus currently busying himself with a shopping list, trying to prepare your room in heaven for you in that sense, putting everything in place. Oh, I know they like blue curtains, so I'll put blue curtains. Not that sort of sentimentality. It is for you. He has you in mind. You will not arrive like strangers, but you will come to a place prepared for you. You. You, as you've put your trust in Christ. It's for you. You know, there's a lovely idea about the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden. It's as if he's saying to him, see this perfect paradise? This is your space. I think we're taking Scripture and dealing with it faithful if we imagine our Savior taking you and saying, here is your place. This place is for you. He'll show Abraham the promised land and say, remember those hills you looked on and you didn't really get to own? This is your place. It's for you. And there's a presence in that place. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and take you to be with me. With me. If you had asked those disciples what was the greatest, most ex wonderful experience of their lives, they would say, well, they would, would they say it was the calming of the storm, the raising of Lazarus, the seeing of the resurrection? They would say, no, I think they would say it was being with Jesus. It was being with Jesus. Just being with him was immense. It was amazing. It was glorious. That's what heaven will be. It will be being with 
Jesus. Professor Donnelly writes in his book on heaven, it is interesting that the New Testament nowhere speaks of believers going to heaven when they die. Instead, they go to be with Christ. You're going home to your father's house where your brother awaits you. And he has much to show you. Much to show you. Especially of his father. Know that the future is bright. Know that whatever faces you in this life, the future is bright. And then, finally, know that your future is certain. That your future is certain. Is that not what we fear as worriers? Oh, yes, the future might be bright, but will I make it? All will make it, but I won't. I'll be the one who'll fall by the wayside. And our wonderful Savior says to 11 men who will fail him and fall. And think of Peter. He doesn't just fall this once. He's going to fail again, and Paul's going to have to straighten him up. Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. What brings us hope? It's not just that there's something better to look forward to, but it's that Jesus Christ himself is coming back to take us to that something better. It's certain. He says, if I go, he says, if you see me going, you can be sure that you will see me coming. See me going for you, I will come for you. It may be that Jesus is referring to the death of the disciples, that he would come for them in the same way that whenever uh, Stephen was being stoned to death in the book of Acts, He said he saw heaven opened and Jesus standing, waiting to receive him. The king had got off his throne to go, as it were, to the gates of heaven to welcome Stephen in. Perhaps it's more likely that Jesus is referring to his second coming when he returns to earth to raise the dead and to judge all mankind. We're not told when. The timing is uncertain, but the event is certain. How do we know it's certain? Well, his first arrival was certain, although it delayed for thousands of years since Genesis 3.15, when God told that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the servant. Thousand years passed and more. But God kept his promise. And 2,000 years have passed since Christ said, I will come and take you to be with me where I am. But he has a track record of keeping his promise So we can be sure of this. No date is told. No man will know the day or the hour, although, um, what date is today? Today's the 22nd. According to one report, the world is to end tomorrow. So you can be pretty sure it won't, uh, because no man knows the day or the hour. We're not to guess, but it is certain that Christ will return. When he comes, make no mistake, it will be sudden. Suddenly the judge of all the earth will appear, and for those who aren't ready, it will be the first and greatest of all the awful days 
that lie ahead. And if this morning you're not ready, then get ready. Go to Christ this morning while you still breathe and ask Him to make you ready for His return. And for those who are ready, it will be the first of all the glorious days ahead and the last of all the hard days that lie behind. That will be the day when Christ returns, the first of all the glorious days that lie ahead and the last of all the hard days that lie behind. And Jesus says to his disciples, don't worry about what lies ahead. Don't worry about me being betrayed. Don't worry about me being arrested. Don't worry about the crucifixion. Don't worry about that. Fix your eyes on the future that I'm going to win for you. It's glorious. I'm going. Yes, this is all part of my going, but I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. This going has to be done so that the future can be put in place. Do you worry? Well, here's a road-tested remedy, one that has been put through the mill. It's been tested in the most severe circumstances imaginable, not simply by the disciples, but by our Savior Himself. This is what He's been doing as He has had to face the cross. He's been putting His foot on the brake of worry and he's been refocusing his heart's affection and mind's attention on God. My Father has promised me that he will raise me from the dead. He has promised me that these sorrows are for my good and for my glory. I will believe him. He has tested this, and he speaks to you this morning, and he says, well, if he if it wasn't him saying it, if it was some young preacher saying it, it would sound simplistic. But it's God the Son saying it from the night before the crucifixion. And he says to us, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house are many rooms if it were not so, I would, have to- I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. So let's resist worry, refocus on God, knowing that our future is bright and knowing that our future is certain. Let's stand and pray if we're able. Oh, Lord God, thank you for our brother, our older brother Jesus, who has gone ahead of us down, as it were, into the Egypt to prepare a place for us like Joseph did. He has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us so that when we, his brothers, arrive, we are made welcome there. We thank you for that. We thank you for the, the personal sense of it when he says, I've prepared a place for you, for you. 
And if He's prepared a place for us, and our, as it were, our names are on the door, He will take us there. He will not lose any that the Father has given Him, and we thank You for that. We thank You that the future is bright and glorious. We thank You that it is certain. And Father, we pray, we pray that You would help us when the troubles of this world overwhelm us and confusion and perplexity and grief and anxiety rise up in our hearts. Whenever despair at the state of the world grips us, Lord, help us to resist the clamoring cries for worry and help us to refocus our trust on such a God who would provide such a future for us. Help us to walk not simply in the paths of the disciples, but in the footsteps of our Savior, and to hear Him saying to us, Woe, woe, don't let your heart be troubled. Look at me. Trust in me. My Father's house are many rooms, and I've gone and prepared a place for you, and I'll come back, and it'll all be worth it. Help us to hear Him reassure us so that we'll not give up. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.